Welcome to Essential Wisdom, Inspiring Future Female Physicians, a podcast for engaging and informing the next generation of women in medicine. My name is Carrie DeBell. I'm a fourth-year medical student at the Frank H. Netter MD School of Medicine at Quinnipiac University. Essential Wisdom is a podcast for discussing the joys and the challenges of being a woman in medicine through the sharing of stories and advice by women who mentor us. Take a seat with me at the desks of the mentors. Come along to walk the halls of the hospitals to experience residency and life as a physician personally, as we get to know these phenomenal physicians and scientists. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Essential Wisdom, Inspiring Future Female Physicians. Thanks for joining us again this week. Help me welcome Dr. Jennifer Rockfeld. Dr. Rockfeld practices internal medicine in Guilford, Connecticut at Northeast Medical Group. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Medical Sciences at Frank H. Netter MD School of Medicine, where she serves as assistant course director of clinical arts and sciences. In doing so, she participates in continued development of the clinical skills course, acts as a clinical skills preceptor, and teaches in the medical student home program, welcoming first and second year medical students to her outpatient office each week. Dr. Rockfeld earned her MD at Albert Einstein College of Medicine and completed her residency and chief residency in internal medicine at Mount Sinai School of Medicine. Dr. Rockfeld is interested in medical education, the practice of lifestyle medicine, and physician well-being. Dr. Rockfeld, thank you so much for being here to join us. Welcome to Essential Wisdom. Thank you, Carrie. So the way that I like to begin our conversation is to ask you to tell us about your path to becoming a female physician. Sure. So I knew I wanted to be a physician from from a young age. I didn't have any physicians in my family, but I was always interested in science and I was very curious about how things worked, specifically the human body and how it worked. So I went to college at Cornell University in the hopes of pursuing medicine, but also interested in um, medical journalism and perhaps writing about medicine. So I decided to pursue a communications major, which at that time, it was very difficult for me to be a communications major and actually complete my pre-med requirements as well. So they advised me to switch to something more in line with medicine. And I switched to something called human biology, health and society, which is typical of Cornell. We have these long names for our majors, but Basically, it was a combination of, it was in the division of nutrition. So we learned about nutrition, psychology, and a lot of components of human health as opposed to just the science. And I loved it. It was, that was really my my perspective to take a holistic approach to medicine. Um, And when I left undergrad, I decided to take some time off. I had already taken my MCATs. I was all set to apply, but I wanted to work for a few years. And I ended up in a wonderful job at NYU being the residency program coordinator for their primary care residency. And that was when I learned a lot about being a primary care doctor and the biopsychosocial model of medicine and really fell in love with it. And I think it helped lead me to my path down the line to become a primary care doctor. And afterwards I decided to go to medical school. I went to Albert Einstein College of Medicine. I liked their philosophy. I thought they were primary care oriented and they had an older student body, which I appreciated. And then when I just decided to do residency, 
I actually thought I wanted to do GI at that time and I wanted to really focus on nutrition. Um, and I applied to and got accepted to the Mount, I matched at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine, which was a wonderful internal medicine and also had an exceptional GI program. So I was very happy to go there for my training. So um, I had wonderful, wonderful training at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. Um, I remained in New York City. I loved being in New York City. I got exposure to a multiple hospitals. I got to work in one of the public hospitals. I got to work in a VA, and then I got to work at the Mount Sinai Hospital, which was sort of a tertiary care hospital. Um, and during that time there, I still loved GI, and I was very um, interested in it and up until my third year when I realized that a lot of things I liked about medicine weren't necessarily compatible with the practice of GI. Um, I loved my longitudinal relationships with patients, which was really primary care focused, and you didn't always have that in GI. I really loved medical education, and I found that most people, my role models in medical education were internists. Mm. Um, and I also, at that point, decided wasn't sure if pursuing another three years of training would be compatible with what I wanted from, from my life in general. So I decided to pursue primary care instead, and I've been very happy with that decision since. When you were studying in college and taking a holistic approach to looking at healthcare, do you think that that laid the foundation for where you would go with your interest in prevention? Yes, definitely. And I think that it was hard for me to understand that at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, what I perceived to be a physician and to practice medicine um, probably was not fully compatible with how most of medicine is practiced. Um, I really felt like I would have this a lot of time with my patients and get to explore the relationship and really get an understanding of how their health was affecting their life and work with them in order to choose, you know, make better lifestyle choices. And when I went into medicine initially, that wasn't really how it felt. Um, and I've had to, in the time since then, sort of shape my career the way that I wanted it to be. And I feel as if now I have that kind of practice that I would like um, that works and I get to treat patients in the way I want to treat them. But I don't think that's always the way that you get to do it, unfortunately, in today's practice of medicine. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really unique that you took that time in between and had exposure to primary care in the setting of being the program director at NYU. Could you talk a little bit about what your exposure was like at the time? Sure. So that was the program. So that was the program coordinator. So I was just sorry. Like, thank you. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> So I actually, strangely enough, I did return to NYU after um, I finished residency and I was an assistant program director for the internal medicine residency program. So I went back to that roots. But at the, that point, right after college, I was an administrator. I was basically, you know, in a secretarial position. Um, and it, I just fell into it. It was really um, a wonderful chance that I fell into that position because they had had a secretary for 30-ish years, a very long time. And she was retiring and they decided to fill that position with people who wanted to go into medicine, young, motivated individuals who would bring something new to the position and change over every few years. They anticipated that. So I entered that pos the position with them knowing that I was going to leave in a few years to go to medical school. And um, I got to meet some wonderful primary care doctors. Um, I got to work with them on projects that I found really exciting. I interacted with the residents and got a sense of what a primary care residency looked like. And it just was overall a, a really transformative experience for me that I hadn't expected. Wow. Now, were your uh, mentors and people you interacted with at the time, what, was it a mixture of men and women? Um, was it skewed to one direction? 
It was a mixture of men and women. Uh, primary care does tend to attract a lot of women. The two um, program directors at that time, the main program director was a male who was really um, a giant in the field of primary care. And then the other program director was a woman. And then I worked a lot with another um, woman who actually, um, interestingly enough, we recently just submitted a publication about um, female physicians' career satisfaction. So this is a mentor that I've had since I graduated college that I still continue to work with and we just submitted a publication together. Wow. That's, that's an amazing relationship to have had the opportunity to maintain. And I think that finding a mentor and what a, what a real mentor can do for you is underappreciated. I think we get confused with what's an advisor and what's a mentor. Mm -hmm. um, and um, really finding someone that you maintain that relationship with throughout your career. I just actually talked on the phone last week to one of my mentors from residency who I haven't spoken to probably in four years. And we set up a hour long phone conversation to touch base and that relationship is still there. Um, even though we haven't talked for a while, she's still able to, to help mentor me in my career. So it, those are invaluable to find role models that, and, and, I, and I do think female role models are important to have, especially ones who have a career that you can see yourself taking and figuring out how they got there. Mm. Absolutely, somebody to emulate and um, maintain that relationship with, it's so important. And um, I was recently talking to someone about the idea that um, mentorship needs to be very personal. And I think that's exactly what you're touching on, you know, somebody that knows you and understands what you're going through. Yeah, and we've, and, and as from, from my perspective now as faculty, you're always trying to connect people with advisors, somebody, you know, and you make that connection, but that's not a mentor. A mentor is someone that you really find is the right fit for you. Um, and there's a really specific relationship. And I've had mentors, career mentors. I've had, you know, research mentors. There's all different kinds of mentors who could help you get to where you need to be. And I think that mentors are important at any point in your career. Mm, absolutely. Thank you. In terms of how you chose primary care, I think we kind of have a a good basis for that. Um, but I, I'm curious if you were interested in practicing this type of medicine when you were younger. Was this something that existed for you as, as a child, as a teenager, or, or did you start going down this path in college? So I, um, I always liked going to the doctor as a kid. I loved my pediatrician. My mom said I used to watch when I got the shots and I was so fascinated by it. Um, I, and then I um, did some shadowing during high school in health fields and during college, I did a lot of shadowing. Um, I don't think primary care was ever on my radar. I was really interested in human behavior. So at first I thought maybe psychology or psychiatry, and then I started looking at neurology, thinking that was the right fit and none of it really fit. And I don't think primary care um, came to the forefront until later on, more in, med more in sort of the end of college. And then really being solidified with my experience um, at NYU in the um, administrative role. Okay. So interesting. I love to hear a little bit about everybody's longitudinal story. Um, they're just so different, mm -hmm. <laughs> but also so similar at the same time about this, this curiosity of seeking to understand and, and pursuing science because of it. Yes. As, in terms of your experience now as a, as a female in primary care, what would you say is one of the greatest rewards that you have? I, I think um, the relationships and the stories I get to hear. Um, I feel privileged every day that people tell me such intimate details of their lives um, when they first meet me. And I just, um, that they trust me 
and they confide in me and I'm able to play that role in their lives. And I really think that's a tremendous privilege. And I really tried in my practice that I have now to focus on that and to really ask people important questions about their sources of stress and you know, their day-to-day and how they sleep and their relationships and connections with people. Because for me to understand that helps me treat them better and helps me get them to where they need to be with their health. So that's, to me, one of the greatest joys of, of practicing medicine. Do you think that any of that is impacted by being female? Is it easier to have those conversations? Are people more open with you or not so much? I think a lot of people seek out a female primary care doctor, mostly other women. Um, and I do, um, I, you know, I, I think that a lot of it's impacted by the fact that I have a, more time with my patients now. I think time is always really important. So I, my new, my schedule now, I have more time with my patients, but I do think um, being female, you know, people may open up to me more. I did have a elderly gentleman say to me recently that he always thought male doctors were better until he met me. And now I've changed his mind. <laughs> so that, <laughs> I, I appreciated that. <laughs> oh, that's so nice. <laughs> that's great. On the flip side of that equation, is there a specific challenge that you feel that you faced being a woman in medicine? Um, I do. I, you know, I do think during my training, I felt like I had the same opportunities and I really appreciated that, but I did go into internal medicine that has a large predominance of women. Um, you know, I know in other fields like surgery, when there are fewer women, it might not feel that way. Um, I, I always struggle with as a, um, a woman balance and we'll talk, I know more about that later. Um, and I do think the balance issue tends to, to I, I'm in a relationship with another physician. So I have a two physician family and I do think that I struggle with it more than he does. And there's multiple reasons to explain that, but um, in terms of balancing, taking care of our home life and taking and, and being present at work and being able to, to manage all the work and not have it overflow into my um, time with my family. Um, so I think that's been, that's made it difficult for me to try to find that balance. And I, I don't know if that's specifically about being female, but I do know that's, that's my personal story. Mm. Would you talk a little bit about how you have sought to find that, find that balance? Yes, the constant struggle. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I've always thought that there is no balance. So I've decided that, you know, at some times in your life, you're, you're shifting towards one end and your career is sort of weighing more heavily and at other times in a life, your life, your family's weighing more heavily and you sort of have to make that scale go back and forth, but I've never had it that they're just sort of even and I'm being able to be completely balanced. Um, and I, I think that I've um, had to make choices to figure out how to make that balance. And sometimes it comes at a sacrifice in terms of my ambition and really where I want to end up. Um, but I know that eventually I'll get there, even if now, you know, my family weighs heavier because my kids are younger and it weighs a little light. It's a little lighter now than when they were really young and they were home all the time. So I'm just trying to, to figure that out. I think getting help in any way possible from family and friends and paid babysitters <laughs> has been, um, and trust people you trust to, to help you out has been really huge for me. And I, and that's been one of the, the things that I've had to lean on the most is, is having people help you out and not being afraid to ask for help when you need it. Um, and feeling comfortable with having other people be part of your life and be part of your children's life and your family's life. And that's become a real 
wonderful part of my kids growing up that they've been exposed to a lot of people. So I appreciate it now. Whereas I think earlier, I thought I had to do it all by myself. Mm. That's really interesting. Um, this is, this has come up like this exact, this exact topic actually in another, another conversation that I had the idea of seeking help where you can find it. And, um, it is so important. And I just wonder for women that are looking forward at planning, whether it's a family or, you know, a full life, a full life in addition to being a physician, um, would you recommend then being in a position where you're close to family um, or close to friends? And, and how do you kind of shape your life around that? Yeah. So when I, so I had my, so um, I also didn't mention, but you know, the other part of the balance that had that fallen out at some point was sort of balancing my relationship and myself and my needs you know, with the family and with the career. And there's so many, um, you wish you had more time. There's so many needs. But when I first had my, my older daughter, I was a chief resident and we lived in New York city and we were both residents. And we, as soon as I found out I was pregnant, I signed up to be at the Mount Sinai daycare. And so I signed up before I even told anyone that I was pregnant and I got a call when she was two years old that I got off the wait list. <laughs> so that wasn't, that never ended up being an option and we couldn't really Whoa. find an available daycare. So at that point we didn't know what to do and we wanted to, we, we hired a nanny, but we couldn't afford to pay a nanny full time. So I actually, I had to have my father who lived about 40 minutes away outside of the city come in and watch my daughter two days a week. So she would come in and sleep on our couch and watch my daughter two days in a row. And then I'd have a babysitter the other three days. And it was really hard. Um, it was hard on him. It was hard on us because we were running home to be home at a certain time. Um, and we did that for six months. And I, I'm so thankful and grateful to him that he did it, but he did get back surgery as soon as it was over. So it, um, it, it made me realize, you know, at that point, we, we couldn't afford to do anything else. And it was so, so, so beneficial to have my father nearby. We're lucky enough now that we're practicing that we can afford to pay for childcare. So I still have to this, I've had consistently nannies that help me out and I don't have any family around me where we live now. So it's just us. And I do pay for my nanny to, and I, my, I'm blessed to have a, a wonderful nanny who cares about my kids and loves them and has become a part of our family. But that hasn't always been the case. We've had a string of people that it didn't work out with. So it's always been a bit of a tenuous balance, but it, you know, you just keep on pushing through and finding something that works for you. So this is not something that's actually in my set of questions I usually ask, but really goes along with this in terms of balancing and not balancing, but managing a family and your work is doing a part-time career, something that you ever considered or that people in primary care really do. Yeah. So a lot of people in primary care do do a part-time career, especially when they're starting out just to get that balance in. And that is possible. Mm -hmm. um, so when I left New York City and moved here and switched jobs, I actually did go down from five days a week to four days a week. Mm -hmm. um, so that's been tremendously, tremendously beneficial for my life and for my family. Um, I have Fridays that are, I do tend to catch up on a lot of work during that time, but it's my time and I could do work on my own schedule, but I could also go food shopping. I could exercise, which is something that got neglected for a while. Um, so that has been a huge, huge benefit um, for, for my life to, to go down to four days a week. 
That being said, I think in any other career, the number of hours I work would be considered full time. But I still, for me, it's still, it still feels protected that I'm able to have that day. Okay. Okay. Do you know people that went part-time in their lives? Yes, I do. Um, that being said, the caveat is, uh, is, is loan burden. And especially for primary care, you know, it's, it's very, I had a huge, huge loan burden. I did five years in medical school. I did a year. Um, and even though that year you don't have to pay tuition, you still have to take out loans to pay for life and pay for rent and food and everything else. So between my husband and myself, we, we have a really high loan burden. That I think is the biggest caveat. And I think my friends who have gone part-time in medicine, there have somebody in the family who's able to pay back the loans or didn't, didn't have that kind of loan burden. Yeah. And, and I'm sure that that's going to become an even more of an increasing issue over the next decade mm-hmm. um, for those of us who are coming out soon. Um, <laughs> I know yeah. that the loan burden is high. So yeah, yeah, I can appreciate that. So then in terms of your interest in um, like both physician wellness and preventative medicine, so whole patient wellness. Can you talk about how your experiences have informed that interest and then what you do in your practice about those things? Sure. So um, I, in terms of my experiences, I don't know how that, I think that was always my interest. You know, when I went into medicine to begin with, I just couldn't put a name to it. And there wasn't probably a name to it back then because lifestyle medicine is a relatively new field. Yeah. Um, and so I um, used to practice both inpatient and outpatient, and my training was predominantly inpatient. And even though I love inpatient medicine, it, it's not, that's not the focus. You know, the focus is getting someone, people who are very acutely ill and getting them well enough to send them out to their primary care, care doctor to do the rest of the work. Mm-hmm. So the shift to outpatient medicine felt like a very big shift to me. And I had to learn what felt like a pretty big new field. Um, and, I've tried to practice um, lifestyle medicine by really focusing on my nutrition background. So I had nutrition, it was in the, I had nutrition in my major at college and taking additional classes where I can and going to lifestyle medicine conferences where I can. And then also here on campus, um, along with you and some other students, you know, working on lifestyle medicine here and trying to build up a curriculum to help students at, a, at the beginning of their careers think about treating people as a whole person and thinking about all the um, behavioral choices that contribute to their health and well-being and how to work with them to make better choices. So we teach students that starting in first year and that um, and hopefully they'll take that into their practices and continue that when they become physicians, whatever kind of physician they choose to, to be. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And I, I mean, this is something that I enjoy talking about as well. So um I know I'm full that it's been a part of our curriculum. I hope that it becomes integrated into other curriculum curricula <laughs> across the country, mm-hmm. um, other medical schools as well. I agree. What is one of the most effective habits that you follow each day? Would you say? <laughs> yeah. So I'll tell you about a habit I've been doing for a while and something I'm trying to cultivate. So I okay. do, I get home from work. I usually leave for work early in the morning. Um, I have a babysitter who comes and and takes the kids to school. And then I usually get home from work around six o'clock and my kids tend to go to bed between eight and eight 30. So I really have that, you know, two to two and a half hours with them at the end of the day. 
And that's their cranky time. You know, I'm coming home at the right time where they're going to melt down. So my, what I try very hard to do, unless I'm on call, is put my phone away. So I don't take it out of my work bag. When I get home, I hang up my work bag. I come into my house. I change immediately out of my work clothes into comfortable clothes. And I'm just with the kids for that short period of time that I have with them during the day. And I, I think that's a good model. Um, I don't get to eat with them, unfortunately. We used to try to get them to wait so that I could eat with them and we could all eat dinner together as a family, but they're too hungry at that time, so they tend to eat earlier. Um, but we do eat as a family together on the weekend. So, you know, having a family to get dinner together on Friday night is important to us and talking about our week and making sure we all reconnect at that time. And then on the weekends, I tend to really focus on my kids. So when I'm with them, I'm with them. I really try not to multitask. It's hard at times, but I try to put, give them my full attention when I'm with them. Um, my new habit that I've been trying to cultivate now for a couple of months is giving myself some time in the morning. <laughs> so trying to wake up just a half an hour earlier in the morning to have some time to do a brief meditation before the kids wake up, to maybe do some stretching, um, just to have a little bit of time um, for myself before the day starts. And um, it's, it's a work in progress. <laughs> so that's, that's my new um, daily habit I'm trying to cultivate. That's awesome. Yeah, the morning hours are so important if you can utilize them. But man, it's a hard adjustment. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and I, I like my eight hours of sleep. So I, I have to go to bed a little bit earlier. <laughs> that's great. So when I was working in New York, my husband and I both worked late on Tuesday nights. We had, I had an evening clinic, so I would get home pretty late. The kids would be in bed. Our babysitter would put the kids to bed. But when we moved here, we decided because of how our lives had been then, and we really didn't have any time for um, ourselves um, or us as a couple, to keep the Tuesday night as a late night and continue to have my babysitter. When we first moved here, we actually brought our babysitter with us, and we had the same babysitter as we transitioned to keep the Tuesday night. So she continued to work late on Tuesday night. And my husband and I um, met at the gym after work, we worked out and then we would have a bite to eat afterwards. So that, and we've pretty much kept that up. And that's been really, really tremendously important for us to have time for ourselves and for us as a couple. And I think that's something that tends to get neglected in the rush of career and kids and family that, you know, you also need you time to work on developing healthy habits and also to connect with your partner. That's awesome. Wow. I love that advice. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Then in terms of how we can cultivate these balanced habits, like say in college or medical school, do you think that the best way to do that is just to begin practicing things like making time in the morning or, um, you know, working on those aspects of your lifestyle early? I think it's so hard and I can't say that I was able to do it then. I felt during most of my training in medical school and residency, especially that I had no control over my time that, you know, things were dictated and I had to sort of follow this rigid schedule and these long hours. And I really felt a loss of control. And that was hard for me too, because I couldn't find time to eat healthy or which has always been really a huge priority for me, um, or I couldn't find time to exercise and I wasn't getting enough sleep and all of those things that were important for me were sort of falling by the wayside. So yes, I, that's part of the reason that I do try to um, cultivate this in the students now and tell them to start early and just tell them that it's important to develop these habits because it's, it's, if you lose them, your, you know, your well-being goes away. And that's why we have such high burnout 
in medical school and residency because people don't know how to incorporate these habits into to our profession. So I think that would be great to do that early, I, but I can't say that I did that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As students look at their, say, third year, start to understand, I mean, just a small pigment or pigment of the kind of feeling of lack of control, because I can definitely agree that at least in third year, you start to feel that way because you're following a schedule and you have to complete X number of things before you can leave and all these things. Um, that's just very different from the setting of being a student, you know, where you're sitting in the classroom. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder, I wonder if it would be interesting to kind of not, not like study, but it would certainly be interesting to talk to medical students about how to adapt the mindset early on in the training, because you kind of have to feel like at some point start to give up some of that lack of control and, mm -hmm. and then take it, take control of the things that you can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that it, nobody's going to give you the time to take care of yourself. Unfortunately, you know, the only person who can set that time is you. And, you know, if the extra hour of studying is going to be more helpful or an hour of doing something that, you know, feeds your body or feeds your soul is more helpful, I would choose the latter, but I think it's hard to see that in the moment. Um, and I do, I, you know, I think, yeah. And I, I, I do think that you feel like you're in this rat race and you got to keep up and you, you feel like this all the time and that imposter syndrome and I'm not doing enough or I'm not good enough or I'm not smart enough and I got to keep up. And I, one piece of advice I would say is that, you know, slow down if you can, um, you know, there's, you're gonna, it's, it's a really, really long journey. So rushing through it is not helping you. I took an extra year in medical school. I did a chief year. I took an extra year of residency. I took time in between college and med school and I'm still where I need to be. Um, so I, I think rushing it wouldn't have helped me. I think even slowing it down more in certain ways would have helped me, but um, I, I think when you're faced with a period where you feel like I can't go on and I, and I don't know what to do and I'm in a bad place right now, pushing through is not the answer. You know, slowing down and really think, figuring out how to get to where you need to get to in the best way possible um, is the answer. But I don't think many of us choose it, especially in this profession. You said um, running the rat race, you know, seeing your whether you're good enough and how you're performing as a reflection of your attendance and your performance and your evaluations and stuff. I wonder mm -hmm. if you have thoughts on um, like medical school student mental well-being and how you separate your personal or personal and professional like value, like who you are as an individual versus how you are performing and achieving as a student. Yeah, I remember, I remember calling my best friend from medical school one day on the way home from a really bad day during intern year. And I called her and I was going on and on about how it was a terrible day. And I, I, I don't remember if I made a, maybe I made a small mistake and it just was not a good day for me. And I remember she said, Jen, are you, um, are you not the top? Are you not the best in your, in your intern class? And I was like, like, no, no, I'm not. And she's like, well, welcome to the real world. Like, like, um, she's like, start, you know, you're not going to be at the top anymore. We're in this group of people who are super achievers and you're just not going to be the top anymore. And you got to get used to that or else you're going to beat yourself up all the time. And that was really a wake up call for me, you know, that, and it happens, you know, you get to men's school and you're all of a sudden with these incredible people 
and you've excelled your whole life and you're just sort of middle of the road all of a sudden or even failing in some ways. And that's really hard to wrap your head around. But I, and, um, I think it could take a huge toll on someone's self-confidence and someone's sense of worth. And, you know, I don't know, I think talking to people who care about you, who know you, you know, sharing that is really important or even sharing that with colleagues because I think we realize that everyone feels that way. Once we talk to people, everyone feels that way. Like there's, I, I don't think there's anyone in med school who says like, I'm acing this, I'm, I'm maybe, but I didn't meet them, you know? So I think just um, <laughs> failures, sharing, you know, cheering on other people's successes, feeling happy for them, developing those connections and being kind to yourself and self-talk and not beating yourself up and once again, going back to doing things that, that nurture you, which we tend to give up, which help us, you know, regain our sense of self-worth. So important. And I'm sure plays a role, like you're saying, when you were an intern and throughout medical school, throughout this whole training, I'm sure that that plays a very important role. Mm-hmm. For young women who are preparing for their career in medicine, what piece of advice would you have to offer? I think that medicine is such a tremendous career that encompasses so many different things. So I think you could do so much with an MD and I I think that's underappreciated. I think my husband, um, he is a specialized surgeon. His day-to-day looks completely different from my day-to-day. I mean, the fact that we both are doctors is the only thing that ties that together because we we do very, very different things during the course of our day. Um, there's research, there's medical education, there's administrative work. So I, I think just being open to the fact that your practice of medicine may look different from, you know, doing, seeing patients every day um, and thinking about what you really like and when you're going through things, what invigorates you and what gives you joy and energy and focusing on those and trying to cultivate those in your life and thinking about what drains you and what's, you know, not, doesn't feel like a good fit and maybe not doing as much of that because I do think there's a lot of roads you can take. And the only one, the only one who knew is which is the right road for you would be you. So to pay attention to that, when you hear that little voice inside your head saying, this doesn't feel like a good fit, or this feels like a great fit, but I don't know how to make it work. And then look for people who made it work and, and ask them how they did it. And then, you know, try to go in that direction. Well, thank you, Dr. Rothfeld, for sharing that great advice, for sharing your thoughts on being a woman in medicine and how to really build your career. I just really appreciate our conversation, and I appreciate you coming on the show. No, thank you, Carrie, for having me and for doing this. Thank you again, Dr. Rockfeld, for coming to Essential Wisdom, Inspiring Future Female Physicians. This episode was so chock full of advice. I hope that everybody has a notepad or something to write down the thoughts that Dr. Rockfeld had to share. I am so thrilled that you have continued to tune in with me, to join me on this journey with these amazing women. And I hope that you'll head online to our website at essentialwisdominspiringphysicians.com to read a little bit more about them. We'll see you again on Thursday later this week and for our last two episodes next week. Have a great week, everyone. Talk to you soon.